You're listening to the podcast for Inforum, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club. Buy tickets to upcoming live events in San Francisco at inforumsf.org. Want even more Inforum? Find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram as InforumSF. All right. All right. Um, let me see here. Um, okay, tonight we're joined by uh, a panel of real stars. Uh, award-winning journalist Julian Guthrie, who is the author of Alpha Girls, which is about women who have not broken through the glass ceiling but have kind of blasted through the top of it. And her book chronicles the journey of four women in her book who found success in a very cutthroat and, frankly, male-dominated world of venture capital in Silicon Valley. So joining us tonight is uh, real-life alpha girl Magdalena Yashil, a founding (laughs) investor and board member at Salesforce.com, long-term board member, and she's also on the board of directors that Informed, SoFi, Smartsheet, and Zwara. And also on tonight's panel is rising startup founder Megan Rose, the CEO and founder of Roxbox. (laughs) We're here to explore the world of tech, startups, venture capital, work culture, and how it has and hasn't changed and might change in the future for women and for the industry itself. Thank you very much for being here. Um, let me start with you, Julian. I've known Julian Guthrie for a long time. She's been a very brave and uh, courageous reporter and one of those writers who uh, has a great sense of story and also has the ability to get people to open up and talk about their lives. So, Julian, let me begin with you. How did you get interested in this subject? And maybe you can help me introduce why you picked these alpha girls as subjects for your book. Well, thank you for your nice words, and it's great to be here. Um, I did learn the trade at the then San Francisco Examiner and then the San Francisco Chronicle, and I wrote, I think, consistently about every day for 20 years. Um, so I love going after a story, and this, Alpha Girls, is my fourth book. I thought of this when I was on a um, publicity tour for my last book, How to Make a Spaceship, and I was looking around, and I would see these rooms full of men, and I would talk to entrepreneurs and um, aerospace folks and aviation folks, and I was like, where are all the women? And so <laughs> I started to look at these industries where there's such a paucity of women and these dynamic industries and tech being in our backyard, I started to then kind of look more closely at tech and then winnow it down even further to venture capital as this industry that is little understood, really, I think, to the outside world, but that is so impactful in shaping how we all live. And so I found this figure that 94% of all investing partners at venture capital firms are men, which made me think, that's an astounding figure, but that, that also suggests there are women who are in this and who succeeded. And so I wanted to know, <laughs> it's maybe a roundabout way, but I wanted to know who are those women? How did they do it? What does the world there look like to them? How did they go after the deals? What is it like sitting at the table full of men? Um, why are they in it today? So this brought me to these four primary characters. Characters, they're real people, but they're also characters. Um, Magdalena, to my right, who is an extraordinary entrepreneur and had a great time as a venture capitalist. But her backstory is also what I really love about Magdalena, this... um, little girl who came from Istanbul, Turkey, and and found her way, and she's going to tell you more about her story. And Megan Rose, who is one of these amazing young entrepreneurs who has a great cameo in the book. And I came across and just loved, again, her backstory and how she became an entrepreneur and where she came up with the idea for this company. And again, it's always, it's the stories, it's the human drama, but I also am drawn to these kind of underdog stories and (laughs) where technology meets uh, human drama. Well, you did a great job because, uh, I mean, certainly Silicon Valley is a very male culture, but you not only went to find the engineers and the entrepreneurs, but you went right into the heart of venture capital. 
I did. And that was really um, exciting, actually, because obviously as a reporter, um, I was aware of the significance. But to I started out by interviewing all of the founding fathers of Venture Capital, and they are <laughs> all men. But I talked to Arthur Rock and Bill Draper and Pitch Johnson and, and the like and Don Valentine. And um, and then just again started going into who are the women who have succeeded? And I picked these women who are from different generations, different backgrounds, yes. had different investment strategies. Um, but it really showed me what a dynamic industry it is and also how important it is to have a more diverse representation of voices, of backgrounds, of stories, of gender, of ethnicity, and all of that. Because again, I really see it as this industry that, that shapes how we live, whether how we communicate, to what we drive, to the medical devices we may one day need. So it's so important and also really exciting and a pretty dazzling industry. You know a little about that. <laughs> <laughs> let's not go there. Okay. But, uh, Maybe after. <laughs> so, Magdalene, let's start with you. I mean, yes. you were the earliest round investor in a hugely successful company, Salesforce.com. So Let what- me correct you. There was no round when I invested. There was. <laughs> there was, there was day so minus one. The, there was no company. It was. You were the zeroth round. Minus. <laughs> did, did, did you talk Mark into starting this company? Were you, were um, you? So I talked Mark into. <laughs> thank you, Courtney. I talked Mark into joining Salesforce full time. But um, the the way the story goes is that I was an entrepreneur before I became a venture capitalist. And my second startup was a company called CyberCash. We were enabling payments between then emerging cyber merchants and consumers. E-commerce as we know it today did not exist in those days. And Mark Benioff was working at Oracle. I was a no-name startup and we needed servers to actually run our software at the banks. So we partnered with Oracle and Mark was my advocate at Oracle. So that's how I got to meet Mark. And our relationship blossomed. Um, I did a startup after CyberCash went public uh, called MarketPay. Mark Benioff wanted to invest, but I sold the company on month seven before we even <laughs> took any money in, so prototype stage. But our relationship continued. Then I became a VC. VCs invited me in because I had three startups in succession that were successful. So, so you they- were successful before Mark was successful. <laughs> you said it. <laughs> well, let's put it this way. I knew Mark Benioff before he was Mark Benioff. <laughs> um, so I, um, you know, so Mark and I were, conti- were continuing to look at deals together. He actually wanted to invest in my very first investment as a VC, a company called Securify. And I gave him a very sliver of investment so he could just put some money in. And then one day, and, and we'd talk, and I was looking at enterprise software at the time as a venture capitalist and thinking that this had to change because companies would invest at least a million dollars to buy software from an enterprise software company. Yes. And then they would invest another at least million or two to get it implemented. Right. And it usually took about a year, sometimes more. And about 90% of the features that the enterprise software offered never got used by the enterprises. So it was, it was so wasteful. I 100% believe that this had to change. And um, so when Mark and I had that um, very momentous uh, lunch over in <laughs> um, Burlingame at the Peninsula Club, um, and the reason why we had lunch there was because that's where Tom Siebel used to have lunch. And Tom Siebel was leading the CRM customer relationship management space with Siebel Systems. Anyway, to make a long story short, at the lunch, Mark was, you know, bouncing off of me this idea of potentially taking about, you know, 10% of the Siebel functionality and putting it in a multi-tenant architecture so no one had to implement anything. You could just use it off the web and you wouldn't need to get a contract. You could just pay by the month with your credit card seemed amazing. And I immediately said, yes, I'm in. I'll write you a check. I wasn't wealthy at the time. (laughs) So writing a check was a big commitment. I'll help you hire people. 
I'll help you raise money. That, af- that very afternoon, Mark went back and, and got Parker Harris to call me because Parker hadn't quite committed yet. So Parker is the CTO of Salesforce from day minus one as well. Anyway, so I did, I did deliver on, I'll help, I'll invest. I'll help you hire people, but I could not deliver on I'll raise you, I'll help you raise money from venture capital. No venture capitalist ever invested in Salesforce, which very few people. Is know. that right? That is correct. Oh yes. my goodness. Yeah. Yeah. Every, every penny well, that's we raise. Like not investing in Star Wars or something. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, hindsight vision is 2020, right? <laughs> so let me ask you this. When, you know, one of the things I like about Julian's book is that it isn't just strictly a business book. It's all also a book about people and about their origins and about where they came from. So when you were a little person, yes. were you interested in engineering or making money or startups? <laughs> what was the sort of spark that got you on Okay, I'll track? tell you a story that's in the book. And, you know, what you said earlier is very true. Julian is one of these people that um, starts talking to you in a very casual way. And you're talking back to her in a very casual way. And before you know it, you're telling her your life story. <laughs> you're telling her stuff that you This is a never, very good characteristic. I mean, it's, it's outrageous. And then like 25 minutes later, I'd catch myself. I'm like, why am I telling this stranger all this stuff? So, so Julian is, is a phenomenal investigative journalist, writer. Um, so the story goes... I, I grew up I'm full-blooded Armenian, which means I'm Christian. Thank you, from Turkey. And as a little Christian girl, I used to go to church once a week, and I'd wear little puffy dresses and wear white gloves and sometimes hats. So I was a very nice-looking lo- little girl, and I probably was five or six, and I was would commute by ferry every day to go from one side of the Bosphorus to the other. You know, Istanbul is on Asia and Europe. Anyway... Um, some, some guy is listening to me on the ferry because I'm asking my parents all these questions and he thinks I'm an intelligent little girl. And he says, little girl, um, tell me, you seem very smart. What do you want to be when you grow up? And I said, a carpenter. <laughs> and, and it was not the answer I was expecting. And he's like, he looked, he looked at me. He said, a carpenter. And then he looked at my parents and he said, a carpenter. And I said, yes, I really want to be a carpenter because now I'm hammering nails into wooden hangers. But at some point, I'd like to hammer nails into real things. So that's what I wanted to be when I grew up. Wow. Uh, and she a- became an electrical engineer at Stanford. So from Close the- enough. Yeah. Close yeah. enough. <laughs> from hammers to... Right. So, Megan, you're an actual entrepreneur. So uh, <laughs> what got you on this path? What made you an alpha girl? Oh, gosh. Well, first of all, I want to say thank you all for having me. It's such an honor to be here. Um, Magdalena, you know uh, how much I admire you, and it's just a real um, a real honor to be here. So thanks. Um, I totally agree, by the way. I had the same experience when we were speaking, oh. and I think... It, 15 minute conversation turned into like an hour and a half long conversation. I was like, I've never shared this with anyone. Um, but you know, I was amazed by her story. Well, I don't even know. Yeah. I mean, I think in terms of how my path came to be, um, you know, the truth is I had a really unusual, not super unusual, but I think growing up, I was, I was raised by a single mom, you know, generally didn't have a lot of resources. And to be honest, I think those things, while hard, actually have really served me very well. Um, on the topic of sort of building a company as a woman in Silicon Valley and all that, one of the things that you get used to is being in an environment where you're, um, you don't look like everyone else, where you kind of don't fit in. And, you know, generally, I think one of the experiences that we all share is just growing up in general, you get used to seeing the people that are in positions of power just don't look like you. You don't have a whole lot of role models. Yes. Um, and that has shaped each and every one of us in really powerful ways. And so I think for me, you know, kind of growing up the way that I did and every step of this journey has been very much sort of putting myself in a situation where I didn't belong and I was never sort of told that I belonged there. And I think that became something that was my norm at a pretty young age, actually. And in a way, I think that that's what it's like to be a female founder is getting comfortable with that and always putting your, you know, kind of 
consistently, regularly, systematically being comfortable putting yourself in those environments in a way that you actually can thrive in that environment. And so, um, you know, I think that that background for me um, of growing up with, you know, not a lot of money, generally moving around a lot. Um, my mom was like in her twenties, you know, so that, that environment I think gave me street smarts and also just generally a comfort level with saying very resourceful, but also a comfort level of saying, nobody's done this before. Great. That's perfect for me. I'm going to go do that thing. <laughs> um, so anyway, that's a little bit of a little but bit it's of interesting, kind of isn't it? Because I mean, you could have gone into so many other things, but to choose something high risk like startups, <laughs> I mean, that's kind of a temperament. I think. I think sometimes people say that the people that start companies are people that say, "Well, sh- should I stay where I'm working? Should yeah. I do a startup? Do I fit in here?" Yeah, yeah. It's funny. People will say. So before I started Rocksbox, I worked at McKinsey, and before I worked at McKinsey, I worked at Bain. Oh, so you're a big consultant. So I was a big consultant. Yeah, which is sort of unusual because the truth is, in high school, I think I was, I was probably would have been voted like least likely to succeed. To be honest with you, <laughs> <laughs> very common with consultants. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and I think I kind of have always had a little bit of this. I'm just going to do it my own way type yes. of mentality, which doesn't always work in the traditional education system. But um, particularly when you don't have a family that's telling you you're supposed to be this way. Yes. Um, and so, so anyway, eventually, though, I came out of high school and sort of made a few decisions and decided I want to take control over my own future. And that really inspired me to go um, to study abroad and eventually go to business school and come out of business school and go into consulting. And I kind of went through this period of really feeling like I had something to prove. And that became a real motivator for me for a long time. Um, But then in consulting, I realized that um, these, you know, the people that were making decisions were just really disconnected from who were the people that were buying things, Mm. who were spending the money. And I was working at that point with C-level executives in large global brands, and they just didn't get it. You know, they didn't get social media at all. They didn't get consumer behavior and how mobile was evolving the way we make decisions. And I realized that I got it way better than they did. And there is nothing, and I, you know, I think people will say, leaving your job is the hardest part. And it actually wasn't that hard for me. I think that's just (laughs) who I am. Mm -hmm. Um, And so to me, staying in a job that felt wrong was the thing that was was just so antithetical to who I am. Um, The feeling of, you know, imposter syndrome was something that I was like, eh, I've had that my whole life, you know? (laughs) Um, So that never really held me back. Well, Roxbox doesn't seem like a technology company, and yet I have a feeling there's a lot of intellectual content in the way you approach the marketplace. Absolutely. You want to talk about that a little bit? Sure. Yeah, I can. You know, the way that we make decisions at Roxbox is completely customer-led, and it's customer-first, technology-second. So, you know, we think about what is the experience that we're trying to create for our customer? What's important to her? How does she make decisions? Um, how do we really listen to her and pay attention to what she's telling us? And then how does technology help us to do that better in a more seamless and frictionless way? And so that's informed where we've invested in technology and where we haven't invested in technology. You know, there have been a lot of, um, there are a lot of technologies that get really hot and then cool off. And it's easy to kind of fall into the trap of saying, oh, we're supposed to have a 20 person data science team. Let's go do that because that's what everybody wants to hear. Or, oh, we should have a mobile app. Let's go do that because that's what everybody is doing right now. Um, and I think that's the wrong way to go about it. Um, so anyway, what we've done is said, okay, what matters? For us, Roxbox is a, a membership-based jewelry shopping service. And so what really matters is really knowing your customer and knowing her style. And that when she opens up that box, she thinks, these guys totally get me. And so it's really about the personalization and it's really about nailing the product selection and the jewelry itself. And so the technology that we've built has been all about supporting that personalized, high touch kind of white glove experience that makes our customer feel really special and really seen and understood and loved and inspired. Uh, and so we've built a lot of, we have built a lot of data science technology, a lot of uh-huh. um, algorithmic technology that supports curation um, a lot of sort of back-end fulfillment technology as well. But all of it is led with this idea of really understanding the customer. 
So back to you, Julian. Um, one of the things that struck me about your book is that it's not strictly a business book, although there's some very original business content, but you also try to kind of approach your subjects, your alpha girls, as what about the rest of their lives? What about their social lives? What about their children? What about their husbands, relationships? I mean, you seem to have tried to find some insight into how those pieces connect. Well, you know, that was actually the hardest part of the book. Um, the easiest part of the book was getting the women to talk about their successes. Although even that, you know, women, um, you know, we have 3,500 years of recorded history and 0.5% of that has been dedicated to the stories of women. So women are not, their, their stories are not being told and women are sometimes not telling their stories. I think that's starting to change now, but Getting women to tell their stories, to realize that it's not boasting when it's based on fact, um, is that was a challenge. So I wanted to know what did they help finance and build that was irrefutably theirs. So I wanted something that, you know, was a company, was uh, a company that galvanized an industry. Again, something irrefutably theirs. And then I wanted to know, again, how they navigated this world that has so many barriers to women. You just look at the numbers. Uh, but I wanted to, to find out what those barriers are. And then I wanted to find out, you know, what happens when these women at all male firms, what happens when they have children? You know, what happens when they have aging parents? What happens when their spouse works full time? Um, who's doing the share of the, of the, of the yeah. work at home? And, Again, really from women's eyes and, you know, how women succeed and how women sometimes hold themselves back or pull themselves back. We're all biased. We're, I mean, we're human. We're all biased. And so the book really looks at these kind of textured biases that women and men have. Um, so, but the most, the most challenging part of the book was getting the women, these very successful women, to talk about their missteps and their regrets and the insults or the injuries, the yeah. broadsides even. That was very, very difficult. Um, you know, I've interviewed men, these titans of industry, and ironically, kind of, they will spend hours talking about their missteps. I think it, or their vulnerabilities. I think for men, it kind of rounds them out. <laughs> and it's a sales technique. Yes, I think so. <laughs> but for women, these women who had to work so hard and had to be unflappable and had to be, uh, kind of Teflon suited, you know, it's, I found it was really difficult for the women to share their vulnerabilities. And, but that was such an important part of this story. And that was, I think, what I worked the very hardest on is, you know, what happens also when one of the main characters, Sonia Howell Perkins, when, you know, she develops, she's diagnosed with cancer, she's adopting a baby at the same time, right. you know, what happens to her deals? Um, you know, she's surrounded by men, what is that like? So again, it gets into very personal terrain, but I think that personal and the professional are inextricably woven uh, in their lives, in our lives. And so I didn't want this. I wanted this to be a story that reads like a novel uh, with those novelistic details mm. where you bring the readers brought right into that story and into, again, looking at this world uh, through women's eyes and how it all happens and what works and what doesn't work. But there's some very human stories about, you know, the parent-teacher conference, the, the real-world conflicts, divorces, marriages, all that kind of stuff, which men face too. But yes. I, I think you were you, you sort of avoided all the stereotypes by getting everybody to go on the record about the whole the whole picture. Well, and also, you know, so much is written about Silicon Valley and how awful it is for women. And I know that, you know, again, you can look it's at the numbers. It's awful for men, too, sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you have to tell us your stories. Um, but I think, you know, what I found is that it can also be a great place. And that there are women who, you know, love this industry. They love being yeah. entrepreneurs. They love being venture capitalists. And they're really darn good at it. And yeah. we need more of them. So, um, so that was, you know, a lot of eye openers for me, it just, just in the difference between, uh, reporting primarily on, on men versus women in this mm -hmm. case. 
and uh, and again, what the world looked like for them. It's kind of shocking that the barriers that exist are still there. They're really ridiculous, and they are very <laughs> real still. But these women that I write about navigated them um, very strategically and brilliantly, but with with missteps. Well, you've written a lot about alpha boys, Larry Allison and yeah. Bert Rutan. So do women have a different antenna for what's possible in business? Do, do they notice things that men don't notice? Well, I think the women that I can only speak anecdotally, but the women that I profile in the book, um, I think they felt that they had to be more quantitative, that they really had to know their stuff, that if they're coming to the table, you know, as a venture capital, they're sitting down, they have to, you know, there are a lot of tricks to the trade, but, you know, speak up early so you're not so you don't become invisible, but make sure you know your stuff, make sure you're quantitative, make sure you've done your homework and really going to an extreme with that. So I think it's more, um, I think there's the good judgment aspect, but that's, uh, uh, very democratic in terms of gender, yeah. uh, good judgment. Yeah. I think that's a big part of it, but also again, just this sense of we have to over prepare for this meeting. Uh, women where the the women that i profiled very much were like that but there is a there there are people that have like the dna to have good business judgment i think and magdalena you Mm -hmm. you've seen a Mm -hmm. lot of entrepreneurs what what do you what do you notice first about the successful entrepreneur that you'd be willing to um i think the most important uh trait of an entrepreneur is conviction uh, conviction and whatever it is they believe in, regardless of what everyone else is saying around them. Someone is trying to, and VCs do this all the time, trying to make, you know, basically poke holes, uh, make you feel like you're really an idiot. Um, <laughs> and most entrepreneurs have the conviction and they'll walk out of the room saying, you know, I don't care what you think. This is what I think. And I think that is a, that's a gender neutral trait. Uh, female entrepreneurs like you here, um, and me when I was an entrepreneur and I am an entrepreneur again, um, have very much this conviction. Uh, I do believe that for women, you're right, we over, overcorrect for, um, being the only one in the room. But in many ways, I think venture capital is an incredibly egalitarian uh, industry, because at the end of the day, you're really judged on the money you make. I mean, I'll put my track record against anyone else's track record. <laughs> End of story. I want to make friends. I start with making them money. End of story. <laughs> so it's an incredibly simplistic industry. You make money for your partners, you're in. <laughs> Guess what? They won't let you go because you're producing for them. You're, they're taking home money because of you. And in that way, it's incredibly egalitarian. Now, getting to making the money is a different story, right? Sitting through those meetings, getting your deals done because it's a, it's a voting system where yeah. everyone votes. And um, let me give you one example, which is not in the book, Um, a company that I actually incubated in an office next to mine for about seven months because there was an office that was empty. We didn't have any partners. I got an entrepreneur, two entrepreneurs to move in for seven months. I took care of them. I incubated them. I worked with them every day. Finally, I felt like it was time for them to get their first funding. So I brought them downstairs. We're all in the same building to the partners meeting on a Monday morning. Um, They presented. I thought, of course, it's a sure thing. It's going to go through. Guess what? My partners voted it down. I could not believe it. Um, Fast forward two and a half years, the company went public with a $2 billion valuation. But I don't need to go that far. I was on the board of Salesforce. I'm the first investor, first founding board member. I brought Salesforce to USVP, my firm, three different times, including three days before we were going public. I was on the pricing committee, so I knew exactly where we were going to price. Mark wanted to sell some of his shares so that he got some liquidity because he was going to be locked up. That means he wouldn't be able to sell his shares for at least six months. And then there are open windows. And, you know, he said, I need some money. And I'm like, okay, Mark, um, you want to sell your shares? Where do you, how much money do you want per share? He told me, I'm like, wow, 
I know where we're going to price. You're leaving money on the table. He said, I don't care. I need liquidity. I need money. So I came to my partners and I said, I have the best deal ever. (laughs) This is putting money on the table. I know where we'll price. I can't share that with you, but I'm telling you, this is a great deal. Mark only wanted $8 a share. And, uh, and this is before the, you know, rever- five to one split. Um, anyway, the bottom line is my partners turned me down. Oh my goodness. You should have called me. <laughs> I should have. I should have. <laughs> Remember I that actually, for the future. Actually, I called Scott Sandell of NEA <laughs> and said, Hey, Scott, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll do one. I'll do a favor for you. You have to <laughs> return it at some point. Here, here it is. Mark, I mean, um, Scott, Scott NEA made the investment. They did very well. <laughs> wow. Holy cow. Uh, do, you th- do you think you have a different antenna? Do you look at deals differently? Is there something you're picking up on that you're... Well, okay. So I had two kids when I... Two little kids when I was a venture capitalist. And yes, I had a different antenna because I had no time to waste. I had two jobs. I had my day job and I had my night job, okay? So as a female, I was much more efficient than men. And because I couldn't, like, hang out after hours and talk to my partners. You know, I had to go home. I had to do homework. I had to get dinner on the table. So I think that I cut deals very quickly. If I was, I I didn't leave entrepreneurs in limbo. If I wasn't going to do a deal, they knew it immediately. And if I wanted to do a deal, I went after it with a vengeance. So I think I was very black and white uh, because I had no room and no time for gray. And as a female, I think that differentiated me. It made me much more efficient. You are very black and white. I I am. Today. No, it's a great characteristic. and I, I agree with you. I think that's a criticism. I actually was just on Sunday night um, given life uh, life coaching by my younger son, and um, and he he did tell me that being black, I was too black and white, and I had too much conviction. And when I delivered my my thoughts, I should couch them, I should frame them in a more kind of suggestive way versus going for it. And then after I more left him, I thought way. I thought the only way I have been successful in life is by being black and white. So I'll continue. And and I'm wearing white. Next time I'll wear black. (laughs) I think you're right. I think most entrepreneurs, if you ask them quietly on a lie detector machine, would say, I prefer a fast no to a slow no. No question about it. Oh, yeah. Right? Oh, absolutely. Who has time for that? Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Being led on and then they don't write the check. Exactly. I find that disrespectful. Totally agree. And I don't really want to work with people like that anyway, honestly. Yeah. The pace is too fast. So, You're listening to a podcast of Inforum, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club. Support our podcast and find out about upcoming live events in San Francisco at inforumsf.org. To what degree do entrepreneurs look to other... I mean, Tom Perkins used to say, look, your best reference is the company CEOs that you've already invested in. Because... The, you, you got this company you're interested in. It's a good company. Somebody else is interested in it too. Right. And Tom's view was, if that guy's smart, he'll call the other CEOs Absolutely. and say, so yes. this guy's on your board. Does he do BlackBerry in right. the meeting? Is he paying attention? Does right, he- exactly. No, that's true. I mean, the reference checking, and I always say that. I mean, I always used to say that. And I still say it. You know, don't ask me. Ask the people that I work with. Yeah. I mean, yeah. that they're the ones who are going to give you. I'm going to pitch myself. No question about it. I'm going to advocate for myself, but go get the truth from the people I work with and see what they say about me. That's so much more valuable for you. Yeah, this was always Perkins' view. The entrepreneur is the client, not the investor. Absolutely. But on the other hand, Frank Hoffman used to say, you're always very happy when you see a guy walking towards you that made you a million dollars. It's always a good, it's always a good, you're always glad to see that person, man or woman. Yeah. No question about it. I'm telling you, you know, money, uh, making money for somebody is... Uh, a fantastic way to make a friend. And I made, I made money for a lot of people when I was an entrepreneur. And, um, you know, they, uh, they still send me, they still send me happy mother's day messages. <laughs> oh. 
So, Julian, what was your thought when you started to interview these people and you see that they're highly successful people, but there's something different about the way they think and the way they act, and there is a glass ceiling. So why did your alpha girls break through the glass? What did they have that many women have found frustrating? They had some extra dimension. It's really interesting because... Having interviewed these alpha boys, as you said, um, some of the you know world's greatest success stories, actually, who happen to be men, um, interviewing the women, spending time with the women, really redefined how I look at success. And it, it's a success that's much more relatable to the rest of us who are not titans of industry, um, who kind of, you know, the Elon Musks and the Larry Ellisons and others who stand outside and... Um, refuse to compromise, refuse to back down by the force of sheer will, you know, make something happen. These women had to navigate within a system and they had to play by rules that were really established by men. And, but they had to figure out how to work within a system, within a company, without, within an industry and did so in very strategic ways. Their successes were incremental and they added up to something really significant. And throughout the book, there are these great stories of small victories that, like a victory that, you know, when Magdalena was offered to go from a part investing partner to a general partner, and she wasn't offered what she thought was an equitable amount in terms of the carry, and she, you know, turned down the job, but she... Um, the, but the the partner who had made the offer came back that afternoon and actually upped the offer. And when Magdalena walked into this all-glass conference room for the first day as a general partner, she was, again, the only woman in the room, but all of the women on the other side of the glass were cheering for her, who were assistants. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and, so there was this very yeah. double standard, okay? In these venture firms, all the partners were male and all the assistants were female. But it was this win for, it was, it was this win for, it wasn't just a win for Magdalena. That was, and it wasn't Magdalena being greedy. It was Magdalena being what was equitable. And, but it was a win for women. (laughs) For all women. Yeah. So there were many stories like that in the book where there are these incremental successes, but that were really, they meant something. They paved the way. Yeah. And, and I just want to add, um, I never, felt that it was beneath me or belittling to me to stick up for the women in my firm. Um, all the other women were assistants, but like we were having a party and the partners decided that the assistants would not be invited to the party. It was after hours. It was other venture capitalists coming in. We were throwing this huge high-end party with a very well-known caterer and no assistants allowed. And I'm like, are you kidding me? They work here too. You know, they, we are successful because of them. So they said, well, we don't want, it's only professional staff, no assistance. <laughs> and I, I was the only female partner. I said, you know what? If that's your decision, I ain't coming to the party. And they said, oh, that's going to be, that's really going to look bad. I mean, you really shouldn't do that. I'm like, I'm not coming. You can't make me. Uh, and make I me. said, the only way I'll come is if the, if the assistants are, because I just would feel like I'm betraying these women. It's like, it doesn't work. So anyway, the women came. And by the way, it was a great party. Who wants to come to a party? What guy wants to come to a party where it's all guys? It's like, are you kidding? (laughs) Anyway, they didn't pass that test. But there were many tests that they passed, including giving me the carry I wanted because they appreciated the fact that, you know, I wasn't going to budge. I was just happy being myself. I didn't have to go take a take a salary or a um, carry. Carried interest means there's a pie, a hundred percent. This is your take the, of the profits, if you may, and then they divide the pie up. So, how many partners? There are ten partners. You divide it ten ways, and not everyone gets the same slice size slice. Some. Older partners get bigger slices and younger partners get thin slices. And my slice was really thin. And I didn't want to go for it. (laughs) Well, with the possible exception of Magdalena, people are reserved when they are interviewed. (laughs) Powerful people. (laughs) 
<laughs> With the exception of me. So why, Julian, why are, how, how do you get people to open up so much? You're a very good interviewer. You, you, you have good taste, but you also have the ability to get people to be forthcoming. What, what's that all about? I think it's be, just because I'm genuine, and I'm genuinely interested in people and their dreams and their dramas and how they succeeded and... Um, it's just I'm relentlessly inquisitive, and I love learning new things and being brought into new worlds, which is why I have always loved being a journalist and a writer. Um, you get to parachute into these great worlds like I have through this, which is such a privilege, um, and do your best to report it accurately and to write the story beautifully and to have something that... You know, I call my books my little pieces of immortality, where you hope that, you know, it, it lives on and inspires. And um, so I think it's just genuine curiosity and um, maybe persistence. And uh, I, I can answer yes. it, actually. I think Megan and I should answer it. Like, why did we tell her all our secrets, right? Why yes, did you? Why tell did her you? <laughs> I, I think what you described is true. I mean, I felt like you genuinely were like curious and you genuinely cared and you were, you were asking, uh, from a perspective of not collecting data, but just wanting to know me better. And that just, to me was, um, I just trusted you, I think as a result. And it just, I think we were teary eyed. I think when you were talking in that meeting and the, the alpha girls is being adapted for television and the producers loved they loved Magdalena, of course, who doesn't, but they also loved Megan. And we were all kind of teary-eyed listening to Megan's story and this path that she went on to get to this place as the founder and CEO of this great company. And um, But what's remarkable is I don't tell my story as a general, not, not a rule, but just as a kind of generally that's the case, not because I hold it to myself, but it doesn't come up. Nobody asks about it. Yeah. Uh, but it was just remarkable to me that you three came into my office for a short meeting and really did. We really went through all of these details, specific examples and stories and things that I know to be true and to shape who I am in meaningful ways, but it never occurred to me like, Oh, this is some a story to tell. And so it also, I think is really empowering on the other side of that because you realize I do have a story and I think we all have stories and telling your story is empowering. It's connecting and hearing another person's story also yes. is inspiring and empowering. And so I just think it's an incredible gift to be able to pull that out um, and help other people to share their story. So Megan, we Thank sort you. of know what the investor wants. They want to make a lot of money, <laughs> but what does the entrepreneur want from the investor? That's a great question. Um, and I think it's a question that entrepreneurs don't ask themselves very much, um, particularly probably younger, earlier stage entrepreneurs. Um, I think, in fact, I'm in the process of interviewing fellow entrepreneurs to find out what, what they're getting from their board. And to, this is a conversation that needs to happen more often for particularly first time early entrepreneurs. How do you make the most out of your investors? How do you make the most out of your board? But I can tell you from my perspective, in addition to money, um, you know, you want people that are really going to push you and push your thinking and challenge you and bring I would say, I think that's the thing that I expect from people who are, are owners of my company are people that are going to continue to push the limit and push the envelope for us um, and do that in a way that comes from a sense of like respect and shared vision and belief that this can be really meaningful and really big. And I think when you truly believe in that, then you genuinely want to kind of keep thinking bigger and keep pushing yourself. And as an entrepreneur, as a founder, this is the most incredible rewarding journey because you're constantly learning um, and I just, gen, you know, I generally like to surround myself with people that are always pushing the envelope for me. Um, and so for me, I think that's kind of what I'm always looking for from a, from an investor is somebody that's going to make me stronger as a leader by pushing, pushing me harder and pushing the company harder. So it's more than just money. You want some, this, uh, these other dimensions. Oh yeah. 
Absolutely. The worst case is somebody who brings negative energy and like a nervous negative energy. You know, it's, it's sort of like a marriage. It's like, it's better to be single than in a bad marriage, but if you can be in a great <laughs> marriage, then it's totally worth it. Um, and so in a way it's like, I'd rather have just dumb money than a bad nervous energy investor. Yeah. Um, but if I can, I'd like to have a really intelligent, fully bought in, passionate, mutual yeah. respect investor. That's all in. Yeah. I, when I talk to entrepreneurs, it seems to me there are some investors that they're interested in their firm. They're interested in their company. It's a corporate venture fund, but the entrepreneur wants you to be interested in their company. It's your company. Mm -hmm. I've got to be interested in your company, not in me, not in my right. aggrandizement. And I think, I think, you know, I shared a little bit about kind of how I think it's important to, um, not get distracted by the noise and have a clear vision for what you think really matters. And I personally really respect and admire investors who also act that way. Um, you know, there, I think as an investor, there are kind of two types of investors. There are investors who are really great trend followers and pattern matchers, and you can do pretty well. And then there are investors who genuinely think differently and uh. they invest in things that are maybe unusual to invest in, yeah. um, Salesforce, you know, is a great example at the time. Stitch Fix is another example. Nobody would invest in that company, um, but Benchmark did. And, you know, I think those like original thinkers are really exceptional. Um, and that's sort of like the ideal, I think, to have that kind of. So I have to ask this sort of $64,000 question that venture people, and we're in our conference room, Magdalena, you've probably been in that kind of situation. And the cosmic question is, do we have the right CEO? Yes. So what do you as investors, as reporters, as CEOs think, when is it time to say, let's bring in professional management? And when is it time to say, let's stick with the founder? Why don't we go I, down? I think you we ask that question you? all the time. I mean, and, and by the way, CEOs ask that question of themselves all the time. They Am should. I the right person? I, I think most of them do. Most of them are self-aware mm -hmm. enough to say, you know, am I really actually doing justice to my company and to myself by being the one who is the, who's the, who's the head person in this company? Or can we elevate this company by bringing in a much more seasoned, much more, you know, learned um, CEO. And that happens a lot. And actually going back to Salesforce, uh, since we're in Salesforce um, country, um, <laughs> the, the interesting thing with Salesforce was when we got started, Mark was the CEO. And then uh, Mark had never run anything. And he had been at Oracle. He had never really done a startup, except for when he was 15, selling like a, um, a very simple software uh, which his grandmother helped him with. Um, anyway, that's a different story. Uh, but, but Mark himself, <laughs> Mark himself yes. came up with this idea that maybe he wasn't the right guy. And anyway, the, the, the long and short of it is that we brought in another CEO. And, and the other CEO was on board for um, a, a short period of time. And ultimately, there was a change in strategy, and Mark came back as the CEO. But but CEOs do come in and out of their roles. Yeah. So I think it's a very healthy question to ask all the time. Well, I can think of two or three companies where the founder was asked to step aside with usually some emotional complexity, and then asked to come back. Steve Jobs, Mark right. Benioff, Anthony right. Wood, there have been lots right. of cases exactly. where it turns out the founder was actually a better CEO. Well, they have the passion, right? At the end the of the day, done. no one takes care of your child as well as you will. And <laughs> so it's the same thing. Well, I think we're uh, due for some audience questions now. So um, There's a and microphone in the back. Up, right? <laughs> yes. But uh, it's time for maybe the audience yes. to have a, a shot. What do you guys find the most annoying thing in your industry? What's the most annoying thing? Of which industry? Venture capital yeah. or tech? A VC. Oh, uh, what, what is the most annoying thing is people with someone else's checkbook thinking they're smarter than everyone else, okay? <laughs> they're not writing their own check. It's not their own money. It's someone else's money. And they think they are smarter and a 28-year-old kid from business school is telling a 45-year-old man who's done it before how to run his business. That's annoying. <laughs> <laughs> oh. 
Hi, um, my name's Maya, and throughout my my life, I feel like I have a lot of self-reflection during transitional moments. So I'm wondering, you know, Megan, when you went from working consulting to, you know, that that first day where, you know, you're like, you know, I'm putting my two weeks, now I'm going to go and start my own, you know, my own company, too. And, and Magdalena, when you went from, you know, being an entrepreneur to then, like, being um, in VCs, you know, like that period of transition, what advice would you have or like, what were you self-reflecting, you know, at that time? Oh gosh. I'm like such a, I could talk about this stuff all the time. I'm one of these like silly philosophical people about things like this. Um, I think I didn't follow this guidance early on. I would say, I think it's really valuable to, first of all, always have that mindset of always be kind of reflecting as if you were in a transition period, but always be growing, always be evolving, always be asking yourself these questions. Um, recently I've been thinking a lot about, you know, I think the, I mentioned earlier, but I was motivated a lot by this desire to, I had something to prove. And I think that that motivated me in getting rocks box off the ground, just generally getting my life together. And, um, and it has served me very well, but I don't want to be motivated from a, from that kind of almost like negative energy space. I really, w- I want the next chapter of my life to really be driven by, um, something about what do I want the world to look like? You know, what, something more like of it, an aspirational sort of hope driven, um, motivation. And so, um, I would say really thinking about where is your motivation coming from? Because the truth is if you're driven from something to prove you're giving power to other people all the time. Um, and, and also it's exhausting, you know, it's not fun. Um, and, and I think really trying to, um, early on sort of orient yourself on what kind of, what kind of world am I trying to create and let that be the thing that gets you out of bed in the morning is just a better way to live life. So, um, that would be some advice. I'm an immigrant. I came to the United States with basically no money, with nobody here. Everything I've done in my life, I've been grateful for. So I don't spend too much time reflecting about things. I'm just so happy to have a job. I'm so happy to be here. I'm so happy to be in America. So I think that I am one of these people who makes a decision and moves. And I don't spend too much time questioning myself. I mean, there were a lot of things I did in my life, including coming to the United States when I was 17 years old, that if you look at it, you could say it was a very bad decision. It had bad consequences. But I don't want to look at it that way. I just want to move on to the next step and then the next step and then the next step. And if I make the wrong decision, I switch. I go the other way, make the next step, the next step. So that's me. I'm very pragmatic. I'm a survivor. I'm an immigrant. <laughs> Thank you both. Hi. Um, Julie, and you shared um, that it was very challenging for the women that you spoke with to, to share, to, I guess, be vulnerable and share vulnerabilities. And then Magdalena, that you said, one of the most important traits in an entrepreneur is confidence. Um, I kind of take these two together and think, okay, well, um, it's, it, it, it is a little hard to, to, to be vulnerable if um, one of the traits that people look for is confidence. Um, and then I guess I was also thinking about um, overconfidence, right? And um, how do you distinguish between those two and how do you kind of get the dial right uh, I, I, I tend to think that if a woman is confident, she's done her homework, um, just because of experience, but, um, yeah, just wanted to hear your thoughts on that. I would just say quickly that, um, I think we have to be authentic in our stories and, and, and that was what one of my goals was with this book. Um, there's the saying, you can't be what you can't see. And so here you have these women who prevailed, uh, were imperfect, although tried, you know, perfection, Magdalena actually says, is, is, is your enemy. And um, I think that it's really important that women, again, tell their stories with candor, the good and the bad, the difficulties. It doesn't mean you're going to go into a meeting uh, acting vulnerable, but I think 
in just sharing your stories so that, again, these stories are relatable, that, you know, the people who hear us talk today will relate maybe to Megan or to Magdalena um, or to me as a storyteller or to Will as the moderator extraordinaire. <laughs> um, but again, provocateur. yes, exactly. Um, but relatable, true, authentic stories. And so I don't think it means that even if you're, you are showing your vulnerabilities and you're in the reality of your life, that it negates in any way your power, um, in business. So you have to be accepting of the, of both realities together. Can I add something to that too? I think that the idea that being vulnerable and being confident are in conflict with one another is a really common story that we tell ourselves or sort of like a thing that we believe Mm. or we've been trained to believe. But in reality, being vulnerable is really hard. And actually, I think you you have to be quite confident in order to be vulnerable. And generally, um, being willing to be vulnerable, I think, is one of the one of the ways in which people who are truly confident um, actually show up. That doesn't mean that you are emotion, you know, what like wildly emotional and all over the place, but it's sort of like willing to say, these are the things that are hard, or these are the things that I need help with, um, is I think a really confident, a, a really, uh, confident way to be. Yeah. But it is complex. And the women I write about, like I likened it early on to, these are the hidden figures of tech, but these women are very much working today. This is not something that happened 50 years ago. So it is complex, as you are intimating. You know, it is a complex thing. How do you be real to yourself and still succeed? Thank you. I think all yeah. of us are trying to walk that fine line. Yes. Mm-hmm. Appreciate that. Yeah. Thanks for a great panel, and Will, huge fan of Alta, so thank you for putting these <laughs> things together where we have great writers and entrepreneurs. Um, my question is just to the panel overall, and I'm just curious what you see happening now or sort of what is your mm, predictions over the next year or two on how you see the venture industry changing, not just in terms of if we look at PitchBook and we see, you know, um, investment in women-funded companies or in which women are, you know, um, um, among the founders, you know, declining from last year rather than going up. But I'm wondering how you see um, investment decisions changing, how you see diversity changing those decisions, whether it's sex, race, gender, um, and also maybe how you see perspectives in the valley as a metaphor for investing in general, how the um, endless search for the next unicorn might be replaced by looking for things some of the industry are calling the zebras, which are those maybe that won't have the 10x multiple in 18 months, but have a longer lifespan. I would just say quickly, and they can speak from the inside, I can speak from someone who's been studying this from the outside, so last year, $130 billion were, was deployed by venture capitalists, and of that, uh, $2.5 billion went to women-founded firms. So there is still this, I mean, that is dramatic and glaring and wrong. So that exists, but, it, but there are these pockets of promise and of change where you have all rays, you have Broadway angels, you have women-founded firms, um, you have entrepreneurs, you know, like Megan and others, you know, taking charge, speaking out, sharing their stories. Um, so I see areas of, of, of promise and change um, from, from the outside. So you two can speak to. So I was going to say venture capital has changed a lot already. The traditional venture capital was very much brand name firms, and those were the ones you wanted money from. Today, in the last five, six years, um, and today, we have many more investors out there, a lot of super angels, a lot of specialty. Um, We have a huge explosion of corporate venture capital. So venture capital itself, forgetting gender, forgetting race, venture capital itself has really diversified. So the, the typical partner doesn't look anything like the typical partner from 10 years ago. So, so venture capital is changing. There's a ton of money that has flown in, uh, that has come from intern all over the world. 
And so we are, you know, we're swimming in a lot of money and a lot of people are putting their hard-earned dollars as the angels into companies. So I think that is a good thing because I don't think that there is a monopoly of money anymore. I think that entrepreneurs have access to a lot of different uh, types of investors. Um, having said that, I think from a gender or race or religion point of view, it still looks very much the same. Even though we do have all rays, or we do have Broadway angels, we have uh, golden seals, we have these pockets of women who are beginning to actually take charge and say, hey, we're here, and we are actually going to help other women. It's just fantastic. But I think the most profound change is really exemplified here by Megan, because Megan is a mother of two kids, a two-year-old and a four-year-old. And she is here tonight <laughs> on a panel after doing her job today, not rushing home to take care of her kids, but actually getting out there. And as we were getting ready for the session, I said to Megan, Megan, you're very, I'm, I'm so in awe of you. Because when I had a two-year-old and a four-year-old, I wouldn't have done this. <laughs> I would have gone home. And she said, it's table stakes. This is what you need to, to do today. So I think that it's this kind of thinking that's going to change the industry. Because my kind of thinking of rushing home to take care of the kids, you know, guess what it did? It took me out of the circuit. It took me out of being out there, being a face. And I really, you know, am so proud of this generation of young women who have their businesses, who are family, you know, uh, leaders, and they take the time to be outside doing the things that they really should to become, you know, the leaders of the industry. We have one more audience question. So there are several organizations that are... Um really advocating for uh, getting women on boards. Um, and uh, there's now a California law. Um, so a uh, question to Magdalena. I would love to um, hear uh, what you feel is the importance of having more female executives on boards. So I'm an entre I'm back to being an entrepreneur. I decided to make money the honest way. And, <laughs> and so I, I not only am I doing my, my own startup, but I'm also serving on boards. I serve on the board of my own company as well as um, the board of SoFi. You guys might know social finance and the board of Smartsheet up in Seattle and the board of Zuora here in San Mateo. And um, I have gone on record saying that I do not believe in quotas. I do not feel comfortable people coming to me asking me to be a board member because of my gender. Having said that, there is nothing that changes the world faster than quotas. And California has gone ahead and put the law in place. And guess what happened to me? My phone started ringing. And now I've had, you know, probably since the, since the law passed, I've probably had seven, eight companies, public companies, looking desperately looking for a female board member. Um, I think that it's a good thing for us short term. But ultimately, we need to be successful on our own merits, not on our gender. Because if we're successful on our gender, guess what will happen? I'll go into a board meeting, I'll open my mouth, and they'll shut me down because they think I don't know what I'm talking about. So it's very important for us to pull our weight. It's very important for us to really be as smart and as educated and read our board books. It is a good thing. Pretty soon, I think that the country will follow. Um, what it does is it makes us as females much more sensitive to bringing other board members on, which is um, something that you do on a board. So of the boards I serve on, every single board where we have brought in an additional board member, it's been a woman. And I can't claim credit, but what I have done is I've said, let's open the search. Let's actually go out there and look at others who are not necessarily the brand names of the industry to bring as board members, but people who would probably put more energy and time into our company. And because we opened the funnel of our search, we added more women, first-time board members in each case, none of them CEOs, and they've been terrific. So, so good things are happening. One of the things that occurred to me when uh, 
I read this book and listened to the panelists. Um, I think the old paradigm was that you could go down the path of being family-oriented, being sensitive, being a person of some artistic sensibility, and that would take you down that path. Or you could be this captain of industry, you could be tough, you could be decisive, you could be focused on making money. And I think what your book showed is that you don't have to pick between those two. You could actually be both. Not and the easy, women in yes. your book are, are living that life, and they're all out on both channels at the they same are. time. They are. Thank so, you. So uh, I hate to cut off any more questions, but I think our panelists will stay and take individual questions. Now, the, this panel is part of the in-forum part of the Commonwealth Club, and they've asked that each of you answer this question, which is, what is your 60-second idea to change the world? So we'll go down. Oh, boy. Julian and... Um. 60s. Okay. I think that uh, I would love to see a robot that can walk my dog. (laughs) It would save me so much time. I fantasize about that. Like, what if the robot, but then he has to stop, and what if he sees a dog across the street, and how would the robot deal with that? So, okay, so if anybody has an answer to that, that's a hard problem. (laughs) It is a difficult problem. Can we say anything we can? Can yes. it be totally fantastic and yes. not, you know, actionable? Okay. I think what would really change the world, my idea, is to do something so that men can give birth and nurse. <laughs> <laughs> that would change the world. <laughs> yes, I love that. <laughs> Okay, Megan, good luck okay. next. I know, that's amazing. <laughs> Can you top that? I gotta, I gotta re- rethink my yeah. dog walking robot. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> uh, I had a similar one in the past, which was that we could just lay eggs and put them in an incubator somewhere, which also would be really fantastic. <laughs> We're getting there. Yeah. <laughs> um, Mine, it was uh, just this like thing that's been annoying me recently, which is like the 20 under 20, 30 under 30. I want to create the 60 over 60 and the 70 over 70. Oh. So that's I love my that. idea. <laughs> I'd qualify for 60 over 60. <laughs> You're in. Okay. Then, Thank so, you very much. But Will, what about you? Oh, no, I don't have to answer. Oh, Well, I have a much less grand answer, which is that people should stop listening to opinions on television and media and listen to actual news and do some actual thinking and reading. Mm. Yay. Very good. That's a good one. Very smart. Very good. (laughs) Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.